We're in Acts chapter 11, that's page 919, if you'd like to use the Pew Bible, but I would either way encourage you to read along. The most important words you're going to hear today are going to come in the next few minutes as we read the scriptures. And so, let's give careful attention to God's word as it comes to us from Acts chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now those who were scattered... Because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The reports of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. As far as the reading of God's life-giving word, and I want to just... 
to put before us once again uh, the conclusion of verse 26. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. What does it mean to be a Christian? Are there any number of ways that we could answer that question? Uh, Perhaps it's something we don't think about all that often, something we take for granted. It's a term we've been using for 2,000 years. We perhaps forget that it actually came from somewhere. It began at a certain point. It begins here in Antioch. Um, uh, Discover scientists, you know, when they discover something new, a new species, a new star, um, or, or, or what have you, what's the first thing that they do? Well, they would name it. They found something new, they name it. The people here in Antioch have found something new. They give it a name and they call it Christianity. They call these people Christians. What does it mean to be called a Christian? There are any number of ways we could answer. And yet, isn't it interesting that Luke tells us the first time people were called Christians comes in the context of believers living together amidst diversity, a unity through diversity. That's the context upon which this name is bestowed upon this group of people. Christians are those who believe God's word, and that word tells them they have been welcomed because of the gospel, and so therefore they welcome other people because of the gospel. And in a world back then that was so fractured and divided over race, over class, over gender, this was profound, this It was a striking way to live. And let's be honest, we fast forward 2,000 years and is our world not still fractured by class and by gender and by race and two dozen other things. And yet to see a community that can see through all of that and to live and love together, it's striking, it's profound, it's different It was different then, and it should be different now as well. This Christianity, this new faith with its new message, unsurprisingly met with some old resistance. Word of Peter's uh, preaching uh, conference at Cornelius' house has reached back to to, um, HQ in Jerusalem, and they're a little upset about what they've heard, that he's been been hanging out with Gentiles. And so he goes back up to Jerusalem, and, and immediately he's criticized, we're told, in verse Uh, three of our text, verse two, that there was the circumcision party that criticized him, the the criticism coming from this subset of the Jewish population, a political action committee, we could call it uh, the circumcision party. They were those who made it their mission to ensure that everybody else conformed to Jewish custom and law. That was their goal. And here Peter's disrupting their, their, their mission. A Jew who was discrediting Jewish custom. Who could believe such a thing? And so the accusation there is in verse 3. Look there with me at what they say to Peter. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Translation. You fellowshiped with non-Jews. You traveled and, and you hung out with people who weren't like us. And you had a good time. You made them feel at home. You enjoyed them and their company. Uh, The self-righteousness drips off the words, perhaps, to our ears. But keep in mind that the vast majority of people witnessing this exchange would have been rooting for Team Circumcision Party, not Team Peter. Uh, This wouldn't have sounded arrogant or self-righteous to them. This would have sounded godly. They would have been thinking, this is what we're meant to do. We're meant to live this kind of way. God, Israel is God's chosen 
treasure, his precious possession. Nobody else. We're meant to be different. And Peter, you're, you're, you're confusing all of that. Well, Peter launches into a lengthy speech defending his actions, which really, in essence, just uh, rehearses what we read last week. Acts chapter 10, he, he goes over what, what took place there, and, and he even assures that they know that it's not some fantasy that he's invented. We see God's providence in the fact that Peter took folks back with him uh, when Cornelius sent his ambassadors, three men with him, to say, come and, and preach to us, Peter brought six men with him. Verse 12, these six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. In other words, I'm not making this up. You can ask six other guys. We were all there. He has witnesses who can corroborate the amazing story that he recounts. And so he explains how he, too, was initially uh, hesitant to fraternize with Gentiles, how he, re- he fought back against the Lord, but that booming voice came three times from heaven. Don't you dare call common what I've called unclean. And so those vision, or that vision, a- accompanied with the Holy Spirit's direction, uh, gets Peter to say, well, I should at least go to Cornelius, to Caesarea, and, 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 and follow this up and check this out. And he does. And to Peter's uh, surprise, Cornelius indeed also had a vision that said, you are going to come here and preach the gospel of salvation. And so he does. And again, to his surprise, the Holy Spirit falls upon the people there. And it's then that he gets it, isn't it? That's when it clicks for him. Look at verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed. And he's talking back to Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, the gift of the Spirit. If he gave them the same gift as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And then notice what's the reaction. Verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. It's a stunned silence. Uh, They don't even know what to say. Uh, What Peter was saying is true. Everything they believed was turned upside down. Uh, The late New Zealand apologist E.M. Blyclock explains the difficulty for the people this way. He said, Peter's message required a major readjustment of all thinking for people fiercely conscious of their racial privilege. And so to accept a reinterpretation of ancient prophecies... To admit a spiritual rendering of old promises that had been accepted as literal and cherished as material. To see Israel melt into the church and the minority of the chosen lose that identity and that privilege and that special place in a global organization. That called for insight, for faith, for self-abnegation, for a transcendent view of God rarely found in any but the most enlightened of souls. This is a difficult thing. So they're silent. And then the next sentence, though, tells us then they glorified God. Uh, Perhaps the silence gives way to glorifying God, or some scholars are wondering if they were two different reactions, a a subset of the people that remained silent and a, a subset of the people that rejoiced. Either way, there are people that say, then to the Gentiles also. God has granted repentance that leads to life. They glorified God saying these things. Why would the news of a repentance given to a people that perhaps they've never met or they don't know much about, but um, you know, people that don't have anything to do with them, why would the fact that God has given repentance to them cause them to rejoice? Two reasons, at least. The first is this. If the Jewish people in that audience were truly the people of God... 
that would mean that their heart should reflect the heart of God. And God's heart is for sinners. His heart is for salvation. He is not desiring that any should perish, but that all should, what, reach repentance. And so, if that's God's heart, well then to learn that the way of escape from death and hell has been provided to others should cause these people to rejoice as well. We should mourn those who die in their sins, even if they're our enemies. And we should rejoice when somebody repents and believes, even if they're our enemy. So there's that reason that they should glorify God because their, their heart should be with God. They should reflect God. But then there's a second reason, and that is when they learn about what God has done for others, it's really an indication about what God has done for them. Isn't that true for us in our experience? When we hear tell of what God has done in the lives of other people, we're able to say, I've experienced something of that too. We're learning about how, how God works and, and what he does. And so here we're brought back to the idea of grace that we talked about last week. For those who believe Peter's message uh, there in Acts 11 and who glorified God, they were rejoicing That the burden of works righteousness had been lifted off their shoulders. What they're saying is, if it's grace for the Gentiles, it must be grace for the Jews too. And that's something you glorify God for. It's grace for everyone. That's even wrapped up in their language, right? They say, they glorify God saying, to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. They don't say, oh, then to the Gentiles also God has has granted this, this sort of works righteousness routine that if you work really hard and if you try really hard, then maybe if you hope and pray, you might get in by the seat of your pants. No, that's not what they're saying. They're saying, just as to us, that's what that also is. That also is key. Also God is granted. Just as to us, God is given, given repentance given life. And when you hear the word granted or given, think grace. It's a gift. So we move then to the second half of the chapter, beginning in verse 19. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And and that's taking us back to chapter 8 with the persecution that Saul brought at the death of Stephen. And so we might think that these stories are disjointed. Now we're going back to chapter 8. What's this have to do with the beginning of chapter 11? But Dennis Johnson explains, the scene has shifted and the actors have changed, but the theme remains the same, that God is bringing Gentiles into the church as his redeemed people. We are seeing the message that Peter preached in Jerusalem being lived out now in Antioch. We see believers who are not standing in the way of God, as he said in verse 17, but rather they're making that way of God known to all peoples, including Hellenists, we're told. In verse 20, Hellenists is used in a variety of ways by Luke in in the book of Acts, Um, but here it specifically means Greek-speaking Gentiles, unbelievers in every way, not just in their culture, but even in their hearts. They're citizens of Antioch. That's the third largest city of Rome's empire at the time, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian. Um, uh, The capital of the province of Syria. 
And they go in there doing evangelism. Did you see who's doing the work of evangelism there? What's their names? That's verse 20. Oh, that's right. We're not given their names. Men. Some of them. Men of Cyprus and Cyrene. They're no names. They're just regular, average believers. And yet, what do they do? They go and they preach Jesus. Here is where we can know without a shadow of a doubt that the Great Commission is for all Christians, not just for the apostles. This is what we're all called to do. We're all called to go and to make known the God of grace. We are all called to that work, and none of us have to fear doing that work when we embrace the teaching of verse 21, that the hand of the Lord was with them. He's doing the work. Through the faithful and earnest evangelism of these anonymous lay people, an amazing thing begins to happen in Antioch. Uh, People begin to believe there's this kind of revival. Uh, News reaches HQ back in Jerusalem, so they send Barnabas as a representative of, of the leaders of the church to check it out, much like Peter and John were sent to Samaria after Philip got a revival going, sort of to give their stamp of approval. And Barnabas is glad. Look at all these Gentiles who are believing. He's not embittered. In fact, there's so many people believing that he needs help. And so he goes to Tarsus. He looks for Saul, his old friend that he had had, uh, stood for and and defended back in Acts chapter 9. And he brings him with him. And Saul and Barnabas, they labor there. Verse 26, for a whole year, they met with the church and they taught a great many people. Antioch becomes a central hub of the early church's mission. It will be from here that Saul launches out on his three missionary journeys. And the final verses of the chapter give us yet another look at this beautiful body of believers. Jerusalem had sent Barnabas and by extension Saul to, uh, to bless the people in Antioch in a spiritual way, to train them up, to teach them. Well then, fast forward a little bit and word comes from Jerusalem that there's an impending famine. And what do the new believers, the new converts, the Gentiles in Antioch do? They say... We want to help out our spiritual fathers back in Jerusalem. There's this this beautiful picture of unity through diversity here. And that that these Gentiles want to give back to the fathers who had blessed them spiritually through material gifts. Paul writes of this in Romans, towards the end of the book of Romans, something similar. He, He talks about how the Philippians, the people of Macedonia, sent relief to Jerusalem. And he writes... For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessing, they also ought to be of service to them in material blessings. So in Acts 11, we're living out, they're, they're living out that expression of the church as a body. Whereas one member suffers, the entire body is suffering. The people in Antioch care about what's going on in Jerusalem. And so there's this exchange of gifts, spiritual and material, back and forth between two cities, two people groups, different in every way, in culture, in language, in socioeconomic status. And this portrays for us the reality of union to Christ, working itself out. And that is why, that is why, as we're told in verse 26, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch because of all this that was taking place. And I want to close today with some reflections on that profound statement. The first time people were called Christians. Notice that the disciples did not choose this name for themselves. It's not that at that time the disciples became to 
call themselves Christians. No, they were called Christians. There are two other places in the Bible where the word Christian is used. And in each instance, it is applied of the believing group from outsiders. The outsiders call them Christians and the same implication is true here. Other people saw them and they realized they weren't quite Jews. They weren't pious pagans. They were something new. It's a discovery and so they give it a new name. And clearly the thing that marked these people above everything else was the one whom they served and the one they followed. To be a Christian, and wake up and hear me when I say this, to be a Christian is to be a Christ one. It's to be with him. It's to be aligned with him. These were Jesus people. People who are all about Christ. Notice that the naming comes in direct response to what we're told in verse 26. That Barnabas and Saul taught the people. That means that doctrine, when truly embraced, will lead to a new lifestyle. First they're taught and then people are saying they're living differently. And there's this whole subset of people who would call themselves Christian today, and it's not that it's any new today, or it's new today, it's been going on for centuries, but, but who want to, to promote this idea, and it's popular in the you know, liberal denominations, that doctrine isn't important. What matters is the way you live. So, so don't get all hung up on, on the hypostatic union, you know, God and man in one person. Don't, don't get hung up on the reality of the resurrection or the miracles or the virgin birth or any of that stuff. What, what we want to cling to is what Jesus taught and, and how he told us to live and the golden rule. And yet there is no Christianity without theology. The disciples here began with doctrine. And that's what led to a changed life. These were people who believed God's word and then they showed it. And most radically, they showed it through their acceptance and their fellowship with people from all corners of the world and backgrounds and, 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 and different ethnicities. The world saw that and it reminded them of what they knew about Jesus or what they'd heard about Jesus. Oh, he was the one who, who, who ate with tax collectors and sinners. This, they're, like, they're like Christ. And they're talking like Christ. They are clearly his people. And so they called them Christians. What do people call you? Not what do you call yourself. What do people call you? There are a number of powerful lessons to glean from this chapter about what real Christianity is really all about. If we think back to the beginning, Peter defending his ministry at the start of the chapter, the accusation was that he went and he fellowshiped with people that weren't uh, like him, that were different than him. But that is the posture of a Christian. The Christian posture is arms open wide to, to any sorts of people. The, the Christian posture is, uh, the Christian message is uh, to be all things to all people so that by all means I might win some. And so to be called a Christian, first we learn is to love others like Christ. To love others like Christ. That, that picture of univer- unity through diversity that we've been getting in the whole book of Acts, but especially 
chapters 10 and, and 11, is a picture of Christianity. Unity through diversity is Christianity. Is that what your Christianity looks like, friends? How many Christians do you know that look different than you? That think differently than you? Uh, that perhaps would vote differently than you? Belong to a different denomination than you? And I would remind you that different believers aren't hard to find. They're under this very roof. They're in our congregation. But sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, we can preach a very different message than we portray. You know, we, we amen Peter when he says that he would not stand in the way of God to, to welcome his arms or to open up his arms wide and to welcome in all kinds of people. We say amen to that, but in the church itself, we create little subcultures. And think about it. Do some self-reflection. On Sundays, do you talk to the same people every week? And do you ever reach out and try to get to know somebody new? And I don't mean a visitor. I mean somebody that you don't know. It could be somebody who's been in this church for years. Do you ever reach out and try to get somebody who's maybe older than you? Or, or um, has a different background than you? Maybe he's from a different... Um, a type of family than you. When the benediction is pronounced, if we all break to our various social clubs, what message are we really preaching? What are we implicitly saying? Or what about when we don't remain to fellowship even at all, but have no desire to fellowship with the saints? Or what about, what's our reaction to various calls to hospitality? If our immediate reaction is to think of all the reasons why we're not good at it, or our house isn't appropriate for it, um, or we're not gifted in it, instead of soberly recognizing that one of the most fundamental things about this new group in Acts, according to Acts chapter 11, is that they sat down around a table and ate a meal with people that were different from them. We need to recognize that, that that's... That was a fundamental aspect of what, why these people were different and why they became known as Christians. Remember verse 3, what they criticized Peter for. You went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. So how are we doing on these things? Do we display gospel unity in our congregation? Do we love like Christ and Christ loved all kinds of people? To be called a Christian is to be somebody who not only loves and welcomes all, but somebody who talks about Christ Think again of those unnamed believers in, from Cyprus and Cyrene. Verse 20, they preached Jesus. They preached the Lord Jesus. These people were called Christians because they talked about Christ all the time. And you have to wonder sometimes if our faith was renamed based upon the issues that people hear us talking about all the time, what would it be called? Would it be called Christianity? You see it on Facebook and news feeds. You hear it in conversations. There's some people and you think... I know that they call themselves a Christian, but I, I'm starting to wonder more if, if their religion is capitalism. Or maybe it's social justice. Uh, is their savior really Jesus, or is it you know, Donald Trump, or Elon Musk, or this brand that they're selling, or this new TV show that they will not stop talking about? Think about it, friends. What do you talk about? What do people hear you talk about? I just read this past week that for the first time, astronomers have captured an image of the, the supermassive black hole that is at the very center of our galaxy. It's the first direct observation confirming the presence of this black hole known as Sagittarius A. 
They called it the beating heart of the Milky Way. They thought it was there for years. They haven't been able to confirm it. And the picture, since black holes don't, as you all know, don't emit light, um, uh, the picture is this uh, shadow with this uh, orange ring around it. It's kind of fuzzy as the light of stars is, or is being bent and pulled into the gravitational uh, center of that black hole. And uh, astronomers said that the black hole is four million times more massive than our sun. Michael Johnson, a Harvard astrophysicist, commented that for decades, astronomers have wondered what lies at the heart of our galaxy that pulls stars into orbits through its gravity. They've wondered that for decades. And then it took five years to send this this, uh, satellite and the telescope out and to capture the picture and to confirm the image. Five years it took them to get this picture back. Another scientist says these unprecedented observations have greatly improved our understanding of what happens at the very center of our galaxy. And as I said, even though it took so long to get the picture, if you see it, it's kind of disappointing. It's fuzzy, it's grainy, and yet it's rocking the scientific world because they finally realize, they think, what's at the center of our world. Friends, it should not take people... Decades of study to discover what's at the center of your world. People should come away knowing that Christ is your center. And come away with a picture of Jesus that isn't all fuzzy and grainy like this picture of the black hole. But they would come away with this sharp conviction that what you are all about is Jesus Christ in all of his crystal clarity. God and man, Lord and servant, Savior and King. Because that's what you're all about. People can't miss it. What's it to be called a Christian? It's to love all kinds of people and it, like Christ loved them. It's to talk about Christ. One final observation. One final observation is that to be called a Christian is to be those who are ready to roll up their sleeves and do ministry for Christ. Do we display gospel unity with the broader swath of evangelicalism. And we saw those two hubs of Christianity, Antioch, Jerusalem, how they work together, even though there's so many differences. There are Christians all over Kalamazoo that are a lot different from us. They're in different denominations, and yet they have the same goal. Do we work for each other or do we work against each other? Are we so consumed with our differences and infighting that we've lost sight of the common message? It can even happen within a denomination. You get on the... the um, uh, the comment boards, I know you're all on there, right, in these weird blogs in the reform stratosphere, and you just see people fighting. What's that about? You could go downstairs, right? Uh, not right now. Um, you better not go downstairs right now. At, right after the service, and you could pick up Billy Graham's autobiography, just as I am. Maybe some of you have read it. And you would read about my hometown, Altoona, Pennsylvania. I, uh, I grew up hearing this story, but I only recently... Um, found out that it's actually recorded in his memoirs. Um, and it's, it was kind of always our claim to fame, sadly, that when Billy Graham came to Altoona, Pennsylvania in 1940s, uh, 1949, I believe, in, in June for a two-week um, crusade, that it was Altoona that nearly crushed his call to ministry. He came expecting broad support from the many churches in the area. As he recalled it, though, local pastors quarreled with him. They quarreled with one another. They fought over uh, who would get to host him and who would get top billing. They fought over theological differences. 
Conversions lagged behind expectations. Services were disrupted. And this is what he writes in his biography, his autobiography. If I ever conducted a campaign that was a flop, humanly speaking, Altoona was it. He thought of quitting and focusing on his day job as president of Minnesota Bible College and never doing a crusade again. So because of the pathetic display of Christianity put on by Altoonans, my mom wanted me to tell you they're called Altoids. <laughs> because of the pathetic display of Christianity put on by these Altoids, the world almost never got to know Billy Graham because they didn't display the Christianity that people saw in Acts 11. Let's help one another out. And one final illustration, again, reading about space, I guess, a lot recently, I don't know if you heard that the toilet on the American side of the International Space Station went down. That's not good. And it's really not good right now because you know what the other toilet is? Where the other toilet is? On the Russian side. And the Americans reported when they knocked on the door and said, can we use your bathroom? That the Russian cosmonauts were as cordial as could be, were so gracious, were so friendly, even with everything that's going on down here. But then you have to think, maybe that's because everything is going on down here and they're removed from it. Should we not have that same perspective, that heavenly perspective, when we think about the differences we have with our fellow believers. That yes, we have differences, but we have the same goal. Russians and Americans have differences up there, but they have the same goal, which is to get back home. Isn't that our goal as believers? To get home. To make it to heaven. And we should be spurring one another on towards that same goal and not getting all caught up Indifferences. It's not to say that doctrine doesn't matter. I already made that very clear earlier. But if our goal is the same, if the message of the gospel is, is clung to, if that's what we are all about, well, then the world should see that we work together. And so, as Luke brings into focus the group that has for 2,000 years now been called Christians, he highlights these Three things, though certainly more could be said. He says that they loved like Christ, they talked about Christ, and they did the work of Christ with others, even if they were different. And the world saw that, and the world said, these are Christ people. These are Christ ones. These are Christians. Uh, friends, I want to remind you today that it is a wonderful thing to be able to say, I'm a Christian. It's a wonderful thing because to be able to say that you're a Christian means that God has first said you're a Christian. It's a wonderful thing to, to claim that you belong to a body of believers. But just think, isn't it almost even more wonderful when the outside world looks in and they see the way you live and the way you love and, and what you talk about and how you work and they call you a Christian? Yes, it is one thing to call yourself a Christian, but it's another thing to be called a Christian. Let that be our aim. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the a picture that the early church gives us of, of ministry and, and of service to you. We thank you that the grace of, of repentance has been given to all people. And we ask that we would capture something of how that excited uh, the early church and that we would endeavor uh, to, to come together 
unified by that gospel message here in this congregation and in the wider city and, and all over the world that we would seek to be those who, who do good deeds and, and the Gentiles see and glorify you because of it, Lord. We want to be known as Christians. We want people to see us and to see right through us and to see Christ. That's what it means to be called a Christian, and we ask that you would make that true for us here at Community. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.